Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 I think he actually said it out loud Yeah the big guy was uh, cheering the Senate for passing the foreign aid bill that will mean a few billion more dollars for Ukraine and he said all the usual stuff about how the Russians need to be stopped and forgot to mention the usual stuff about uh, you know, how Ukraine is and always has been one of the most corrupt countries in Europe. And how his friend Zelensky has uh, shut down the media, shut down some churches. But as part of the sales pitch to put pressure on the House to put it to a vote and pass it immediately, he said the war is good for the U.S. economy. He reminded everybody that after we send billions of dollars to Ukraine, Zelensky has to use the money to buy tanks and missiles and whatever else he needs to hold off the Russians. And guess where he goes to buy the stuff? Joe mentioned uh, several companies in the U.S. that make and sell bombs and missiles and things that blow other things up. And he he mentioned that those companies employ thousands of Americans. Now, when did it become okay to say that stuff out loud? I used to hear that a lot, but nobody was nobody would say it like as as, as he did, just right out there in front of everybody. Should the president be telling us war is a good idea because it keeps people who work in the defense industry employed? That was supposed to be a bad thing. After Ukraine loses to Russia, what happens when they don't need any more help from the U.S.? Does that mean whoever the president is at that point should be looking for another country that might be looking for a good deal on tanks, bombs, and missiles? Should we question the real reasons for getting into the next war because of what the big guy told us today? Anyway, when we come back, Rasmussen is known for its accuracy in polling. They called people who voted by mail in 2020 to find out how many of them cheated. Turns out a lot of them did. A lot. And in our second half hour, the author of a book called Racism, Revenge, and Ruin, It's All About Obama. Stick around. Well, the uh, Demediacrats would like you to believe that the 2020 election is old news and it's way past time to move on. Maybe it is old news, but uh, that doesn't mean that new information doesn't keep popping up to reinforce the idea that Trump won. Heartland Institute and Rasmussen, Rasmussen, I should say, took a poll of 2020 voters recently and released a report with important new information. Chris Talgo of Heartland Institute is co-author of that report. He joins us now. Chris, thanks for coming on. Uh, whom did you poll? So in uh, late November, early December of last year, we polled 1,085 voters who participated in the 2020 election, and we asked them a bunch of questions about their voting behaviors. Uh, one of the first questions we asked them was, did you vote by mail? And then among those who did answer, yes, I voted by mail in 2020, our poll found that at least one in five committed at, at least one type of voter fraud. Then we got the uh, the data from uh, Rasmussen, and we started to dig really deep into it. And uh, what we found uh, was that actually it was more like 28 percent, 28 percent committed uh, voter fraud. 
And then after that, we started thinking, wow, man, this is a really high number. It's really, you know, probably impacted the election. So we we dug into it even deeper and we uh, looked at the uh, the voter analysis uh, provided by the states for mail-in voting. And uh, across the board, Joe Biden received uh, more, almost twice as many uh, mail-in votes than Trump did. So then we started to uh, extrapolate the numbers and say, well, gee, what would happen if we say that 28 percent of those votes cast by mail should have been thrown out, what would have happened? Well, what would have happened is Donald Trump would have won the election easily and all the way down to the rates of fraud going down to as low as four and five percent. Donald Trump still would have won the election easily. So really what this tells us is based on what the voters said that they did in 2020, you take that and then you uh, extrapolate it out onto the uh, Electoral College map. Donald Trump would have won the 2020 election. Yeah, that's uh, it's amazing. So uh, could you explain when you say you bring it down to three or four uh, percent uh, fraud, you're saying that he, that you can go all the way up to 28 and then Trump wins. But you can you can take it down if only three or four percent committed some kind of fraud. He still wins. Exactly. And uh, one of the other things that we looked into was in the 2020 election, there were 65 million votes cast by mail. 0.79% of those were thrown out for whatever reason, whether it didn't have a signature verification or the person, you know, no longer lived at that address. In previous elections, that figure has been at least five, six, seven, eight percent. So what can account for this flood of uh, mail of mail and ballots, yet only less than one percent of them were thrown out because they were cast fraudulently? It does not pass the smell test. Yeah. Um, and how were you able to contact these people that you decided to poll? So we had Rasmussen do all the polling. And what they did was they contacted, like I said earlier, 1,085 people who voted in 2020. But we didn't say, hey, did you do this? And, and we didn't tell them ahead of time that it was election fraud. We just asked, did you did you fail out a ballot for someone else? Did you vote in a state where you're no longer resident? Generally, across the board, 20 percent of people were like, yeah, I did that. Then we looked at the at the, um, the the tabs and we looked into the cross tabs and we found that, wow, you know, uh, Democrat voters voted way more than uh, Republican voters by mail. And we were suspicious that this would have impacted the election. And we let the data speak for itself. And what we found is that unless the rate of fraud was minuscule, three percent, maybe four percent, Trump would have won the 2020 election. Now, these people who uh, admit to having done uh, fraud, what, what kind of fraud are we talking about? So they could have failed. Uh, they could have mailed in a ballot on behalf of someone else. They could have filled in uh, someone's ballot and put into a ballot drop box. They could have voted uh, in a state where they are no longer a permanent resident. And even 8% admitted that they were offered a bribe or some sort of reward for their vote. Now, how many of these people that were asked this knew that they were admitting to doing something illegal? And how many thought that that's just the way it works uh, with the mail-in balloting? Well, that's something that I can't answer because we didn't tell them before or after the poll that, hey, what you just admitted to was voter fraud, because we wanted to get a very honest assessment. We also waited a couple of years 
for all the uh, all the dust to settle on the 2020 election before we actually did this, because we thought, and I think this makes sense, that people are going to be more honest the further off from the election that we are. Yeah, and um, you say that you. How did you get again to the 28.2 percent number? The and we're all separate. We were not um, asking them if they committed multiple mm-hmm. types of election fraud. However, when Rasmussen provided us all the uh, data, we looked into it and uh, we came up with the 28% figure because many people did commit multiple types of election fraud. So, uh, and and you applied these numbers to swing states, correct? Yeah. So we focused on the six swing states because the six swing states that we highlight in the report were each won by Joe Biden with less than 20,000 votes. So this notion that the 2020 election had to be this grand conspiracy in which millions and millions of you know ballots were involved and all this crazy stuff had happened, that's not the case either. All it took was a couple thousand ballots in a couple of key swing states, and you have Joe Biden win the election when Donald Trump actually won the election. Yeah, and Russ Musson's been doing this for a while, so they're and they're, and they're I think they I think it's safe to say they have a reputation as one of the more accurate polling companies. Um did did they uh do this first and then contact you or did you hear about their poll that they were doing and you wanted to hear more about it? How did that how did you two get together? for the past couple of years just doing uh you know a variety of polls on different subjects. And what happens is, you know, we bring them the questions, they then do the polling. We brought them these questions, they did the polling, and I'll tell you that even the people at Rasmussen were shocked with these findings. They were shocked. They they were shocked because we've just been, we've been conditioned to believe that the 2020 election was the most safe and secure election in history. Because the media, like you said earlier, and a bunch of, you know, government officials just kept scolding us, thinking that we if if they just repeated it enough that we would believe it. However, I do think that most Americans understand that that is not true, that uh, mail-in balloting like occurred in 2020 is an invitation for mass voter fraud. And what's going to prevent it from happening again? So that's that's the other part of the report. One of the things that we really uh, did was we dug into the states and the laws that they have on the books and the laws that they don't have on the books in terms of uh, mail-in voting. And we've got a bunch of policy recommendations that states really need to uh, get on and pass before the 2024 election. And uh, real quick, Florida and Georgia have done a great job in this. They did a great job right after 2020. But I, I'm sure you remember that the media came in and said this was voter suppression, this was racist, this was all you know terrible stuff. But what happened in 2022 in both Florida and Georgia was you had a higher turnout rate among minorities. So these common sense uh, recommendations to make sure that people are voting on the up and up actually makes more people wanting to vote because I think they know intuitively that that means that their vote is more likely to be counted. Well, it's interesting. I'm looking at the report here, and you break it down uh, by uh, the swing states and by the amount of fraud. And uh, what's interesting, if if um, if there's 28.2 percent fraud, Trump wins Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. He wins the electoral electoral college 311 to 227. 
and a 27% fraud through 14% fraud. Uh, he wins um, you know, from 27% fraud down through 14. The overall results are identical to the 28.2, though Trump's margin of victory in each state shrinks. Then you have, uh, this is 13%. So if there's only 13% fraud through 6% fraud, Trump wins Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, but loses to Biden in Michigan and Nevada. Trump wins the Electoral College even in that one, 289 to 249. And I see that <laughs> the only way Biden wins the Electoral College, if there's only three, um, I guess, 2%, uh, 3% fraud. Trump, Trump wins Arizona, Georgia, but loses to Biden in Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. And Biden, if, if there had only been 3% fraud, uh, Biden would have won the Electoral College anyway, 279 to 259. So it's basically, if there's no fraud, there's no way he wins. In the Democrat primaries in 2020, in states like Pennsylvania and states like New York, remember, this is only Democrats voting, they did mass mail-in uh, balloting for those primaries. More than 20% of those ballots were discarded and not counted because they were fraudulently cast. So are you telling me that in a primary election, 20% of the votes were discarded because they were cast fraudulently, but then in the general election, in which you've got tens and tens of millions, 65 million in total, that 0.79% of those votes were cast fraudulently? No. <laughs> uh, so... Um, what what's been the reaction to this that you've gotten from other people? Um, you know, and then many, I guess you could say that a lot of people are tired of hearing about what happened in 2020. Nothing was proven. Uh, the courts didn't prove anything. Just get on with it. Move on. Go to 2024. We have gotten that reaction from some, even in the conservative uh, media sphere, which to me is kind of sh is kind of shocking also, because I would think that these people are very, very concerned with this happening again in 2024. But like you said, you know, after 2020, anyone who questioned the, the you know veracity of the 2020 election was called an election denier and they were. Uh, you know, maligned by the media. So I think that some of the media think, oh, no, this is taboo. We can't talk about this. But I am of the total opposite belief. I think that we need to resurrect this problem and we need to just show that, hey, the people admitted that they committed election fraud with the mass mail-in balloting. We need to make sure that 2024 does not become another repeat of 2020 in which states just say we're going to send tens of millions of ballots on, you know, based on outdated uh, voter registration rolls. We need to make sure that we go back to normal. People should vote in person with an ID on Election Day. Yeah. And, and you mentioned in the report that um, the number of people voting by mail just about doubled from 2016 to 2020. They used COVID as an excuse, right? COVID as an excuse, and it's also important to understand that they went around state legislatures because state legislatures, according to the U.S. Constitution, have the means to change elections. But, of course, under the guise of COVID-19 and all their emergency declarations, uh, governors and secretaries of state, they just said, well, we're going to, you know, usurp the power from our state legislature and we're just going to say that it's a, you know, it's an emergency and we're just going to allow everyone to vote by mail. We cannot let that be the new normal. 
Yeah, and as you said, anybody who challenges it, the official narrative, you're, you're called an election denier. Uh, Donald Trump is in, you know, risking going to prison and being called uh, some, uh, an insurrectionist, which, which is what you now are called if you question, if, if you are in an election and you lose and you question it, then you are, you are a denier, but you're also committing a crime. You're, you're trying to overthrow the government. Or overturn yeah. an election, I guess I should say. Absolutely. They're, they're trying to conflate those issues. They're trying to make it seem like if you question what occurred in 2020, which was so outside the norm, that you are a traitor. Actually, it's the total opposite. People should be rightfully concerned with what happened in 2020, and we should be doing everything we can to make sure that that doesn't happen again. And if you're on the other side of this equation, if you're the one who's always saying we want to just mail out millions of ballots willy-nilly, who cares where they go, you know, ballot harvesting, drop boxes, unattended, all this stuff, that to me is someone who doesn't care about the integrity of election. We're finishing up here with Chris Talgo of the Heartland Institute. Uh, he's co-author of a report that was done with uh, Rasmussen polling that shows that uh, lots of voters in 2020 voted fraudulently when they voted by mail. Um, th- there's, is there any chance that we're going to see less mail-in voting next November? Well, that remains to be determined. You know, I've been watching some news stations who are saying that they think that 2024 is going to be 2020 all over again, and that states are going to declare some sort of emergency at the very last minute. Now, granted, this has political, you know, ties to it because they think that uh, Joe Biden is, you know, doing terribly in the polls and they're just going to try to pull something out of their, you know, head at the very last second. Um, But I just think, you know, regardless of that, we just need to make sure that this was a one-off election, that the American people understand that voting in person preferably as close to Election Day as possible, is the best way to make sure that our vote is going to be as uh, honest as possible. And people can find this study at heartland.org, correct? Yes, sir. Yep. Hey, Chris, good work, and uh, everybody should check this out. Uh, It would be nice if the media would do that. I'm not that uh, confident that that's going to happen, most media anyway, but... This uh, lays it out there pretty good. I really appreciate you coming on and uh, explaining it for us. Appreciate it, too. Okay, thank you. That's Chris Talgo of Heartland Institute. I'll be right back. It's been uh, pretty apparent from day one that Joe Biden is actually serving Barack Obama's third term. Obama was open about wishing he could run the country from his house in Washington. You've probably seen the video. So how much damage has he done to the country? Well, Scott McKay, uh, he's the author of Racism, Revenge, and Ruin. It's all Obama. And he joins us now. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, Scott. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy Mardi Gras, by the way. Oh, yeah. And Fat Tuesday and all that. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> the first chapter in the book is called He's Still in Charge. How much in charge is he, do you think? Well, I, I think it's fairly clear, even though there are plenty of people in the legacy corporate media who would uh, have you believe otherwise, that, you know, if, if this isn't Barack Obama's third term, it might be his fourth, given that he ran a shadow government for four years when Donald Trump was president. Um, but, I mean, he's the, he's the, 
He's the only president to choose to live in Washington, D.C. after his presidency was over. Um, you know, the, the, if there's a smoking gun, it happened a couple of years ago when Obama came to the White House as more or less a conquering hero. And I'm sure you remember the video of Joe Biden walking around the room trying to find somebody that would engage him in conversation and couldn't do it because they were all mobbing the boss. Um, and then, you know, the, the more substantive piece to this is that while it's true that one uh, presidency of a particular political party will have some, you know, holdover people from the previous presidency of that party, uh, there's usually a mix. You know, it usually there's some old hands and then there's people who, you know, came up with the new president. In Biden's case, there are no new people. They're all Obama people. Uh, every one of them is, you know, somebody that that uh, was of Obama much more than of Biden. And, you know, the branding of this is pretty clear, right? Biden ran for president as a moderate centrist who was going to get the country back to some sense of normalcy. And instead, he's got the most left wing presidency of anybody in American history. Um, which is a little off brand for Joe Biden to the extent that Biden even has a brand. So, you know, clearly the, the power is elsewhere. And it's really obvious when you have David Axelrod talking about firing Biden from the presidential ticket uh, on in legacy media that, you know, and, and Axelrod is, is an Obama uh, mouthpiece, if there ever was one. I mean, it's clear that the, the power is Obama. And so, one of the reasons I wrote Racism, Revenge and Ruin is that we need to make the focus, uh, you know, where it belongs, which is that this guy is the most influential, uh, significant presence in American politics over the last 15 to 20 years. And we are suffering very badly as a country as a result. You mentioned uh, that he's might it might be his fourth term. Uh, what what control did he have during the Trump administration? Well, you know, there was that report uh, several months back about the 5,000 uh, people that Obama had embedded into the bureaucracy uh, who took pride in the fact that they did everything they could to stymie policy initiatives that uh, that Trump had had um, had had brought to bear, you know, whether it was the Department of Education or the EPA or any of these agencies, uh, you know, they weren't fully Trump's. And that's one of the reasons why. Uh, he's got what is it? Schedule F is the, the the thing that he wants to put in place if he gets uh, elected immediately, which is you know to to transfer a whole bunch of these people to uh, at will employees so that he can change them out because they noticed how much resistance was going on. But you know what's more forward facing than that was you know the the Russia hoax that was put in place by Obama holdovers. Uh, in, uh, you know, the FBI and, and in the Justice Department. Uh, and then, you know, you had a two-year investigation of, of essentially nothing by Robert Mueller. Uh, and then, you know, at the end of this, you, you had, say, Fauci and Burks, for example, who were politicizing the COVID epidemic to the best uh, of their ability. And then you had the 51 intelligence community spooks who lied and said that the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian disinformation. Well, as you mentioned, um, there are always some holdovers from an, from an administration, especially when it's a similar party. But in this case, it, there, the Trump administration was in between. So it wasn't really a holdover the way it was in many times when 
you know, a, a Democrat incumbent is replaced by another Democrat. This there was a Republican right. in between. What? Uh, how is Obama so talented that he was able to pull that off? Well, you know, you had some people, for example, the Tony Blinkens and Lloyd Austins of the world who cycled out into the private sector uh, during the, you know, the call it the Trump interregnum, if you will. Um, but they were all Obama people who populated the inner circle of the Biden administration. I mean, you know, whether it was Susan Rice or Samantha Power, uh, you know, Ron Klain was Biden's chief of staff and he was he was Biden's chief of staff as vice president. But he was also an Obama guy going way back. Um, and, you know, it was actually in the Obama inner circle. If you go and in, in, uh, Google Solyndra and Ron Klain, you'll see all the way back in 2010 how heavily involved he was in making policy in the Obama administration. So, you know, that that inner circle is it's all Obama people like there's nobody from Delaware that came up with Biden, you know, during his time as a senator, for example. Um, you know, like he, he was handed a team uh, of handlers who are definitely Obama folks. So how did a guy like uh, Barack Obama pull this off? Um, you know, it's not like he he was a, a fixture in Washington before he showed up as a candidate for no. president. Um, he was a Chicago guy. A, uh, he was a, a, you know, what do you call him? A street organizer. Um, and. What is it about? Is it his talent? I mean, how was he able to do this? Because there have been other presidents who were products of the Washington scene who were around forever and didn't, or at least maybe didn't try or weren't able to do what Obama has done, which is maintain his influence now eight years is going to be after he left office. Well, and I think you hit on it talking about his background as a community organizer. Um, that is a model of political organization that is, um, you know, largely comes from totalitarian regimes. Uh, the Nazis were pretty good community organizers. The Bolsheviks were excellent community organizers. Nobody was a better group of community organizers than the Maoists. Um, and Obama, you know, trained at the feet of, of you know, Saul Alinsky and Michael Harrington and those guys who were the the uh, masters of that stuff in America. And they they transformed the socialist movement and then the Democrat Party into a, a an operation that was based on community organi- organizing. And today the Democrat Party is a collection of urban socialist political machines in, you know, big blue cities uh, that are organized on the basis of collecting federal dollars and then dispersing them to constituency groups who are, you know, dependent and thus very, very loyal. And so, you know, he was able to organize that party in a very hierarchical uh, type of construct, uh, which is a straight up, you know, Alinskyite socialist model that that completely blew away what was there in the Democrat Party prior to that, which was more of a Clintonian you know, transactional model with people at the state and local level. This is much more of a command and control type of thing. And it's absolutely in place in the Democrat Party. You see no dissent in that party at all in Congress or much of anywhere else. Yeah, that's an issue that um, people who support the Republicans um, 
come up with all the time is that there always seems to be just enough infighting among Republicans that they can allow the Democrats to win little battles. Uh, you know, 10 or 12 Republican or senators, you know, or big ones, but 10 or 12 Republican senators will cave, or maybe only two or three, you know, your Romneys and your, the, those those guys. And and then the same thing happens in the House. They're always, But that never happens with the Democrats. They're always 100% together. Yeah, well, I mean, iron discipline is absolutely the function of a totalitarian organization. Um, and, you know, you can see what that looks like. You can go ask Joe Manchin. You could go ask Kirsten Cinema. You know, you could ask RFK Jr. They will tell you um, the, you know, the price of dissent is excommunication. And that is very much what uh, the, the Barack Obama effect on that party. Um, and, you know, on American politics as a whole, much less so on the Republican side. Uh, but it's, you know, you like this politics is war. There's no compromise to be had, and you have to have iron discipline on your side and you know in order to win. I mean this is the reason that you have so few people in the Democrat Party who are you know clamoring to find somebody other than Joe Biden when it's very clear we have somebody who is non mentis in the White House. Um, I mean, you would think that their own party would would lose their minds over this and be desperate to find somebody else. And yet the party line that almost nobody will dissent from right now is that Joe Biden is fine. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's amazing. Biden was a guy who's a law. He was a, uh, a the epitome of a swamp creature who's been in Washington way too long, long before he became even vice president. He had been there too long. So how sure. how why was he a good vessel for these people? Because of his well, because of his mental uh, his diminished mental capacity, or because he was just desperate to be president. Well, yeah, I think both of those are true. I think the fact that Joe Biden was ethically compromised at a uh, level perhaps that we've not seen in American politics, you know, made him useful. Right? I mean, you can control somebody uh, who has those kinds of skeletons in their closet with the, you know, the deals that he cut with the Chinese and the U- Ukrainians and the rest of these kind of unsavory people through his son. Um, so, you know, you had that. And then, you know, mostly you had Joe Biden, who so desperately wanted to be president that he would do things that other people wouldn't. And so, you know, I mean, if the deal was cut that, you know, hey, we'll we'll make you the nominee. And believe me, they made him the nominee in 2020. I mean, his campaign was on the rocks and Bernie Sanders was the front runner at that point for the nomination. And then all of a sudden, all these people started dropping out and endorsing Biden. Um, you know, I don't think that that was not, you know, uh, backroom deals being cut. And, you know, so he's the he's the right kind of guy if you want to run a, a political machine and have a front man who is copacetic to what you want to do. I mean, Joe Biden just wants the job. You know, he didn't have a vision for America that was his own. And so, you, yeah, you make him president and you tell him what to do. Now, you know, there's a theory out there about Michelle Obama running um, and yeah. that she's waiting in the wings here for when. Uh, Joe starts drooling all over himself and has to quit. Um, do you buy that theory at all? Is that because the, the the person that you describe in this book, the bit that I've read uh, since knowing you were going to come on the show, um, 
that seems like something that would be very much as a part of his game plan. I would I would say that Barack Obama would love to put his wife into the race and make her president. Um, and, and I think they they may get in a situation where they're desperate enough to pull out all the stops to get her to do it. I don't think she wants it. I I, I see very little evidence that Michelle Obama uh, wants to be president or w- wants to most importantly wants to do the work of being president. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's an obstacle. The other the other obstacle is I don't think anybody can tell Michelle Obama what to do. Um, <laughs> not even so Barack. These, yeah, not even, especially not especially Barack. Not and him, so yeah. I think, yeah, I think you have, you know, those two big obstacles to doing this. Otherwise, I wouldn't put it past these guys at all to parachute her in at the, at the convention uh, with some sort of cover story about Biden's health or whatever it might be. Uh, because as of right now, I don't think, you know, you, you get to November with Biden's current state and and the, 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 the speed at which his uh, cognitive uh, impairment is progressing. Like, I, I don't know, this guy might not even be able to make complete sentences by November. And so, you know, they, they may get in a situation where they, you know, they have no choice but to try to parachute her in because if it's not her, I don't know how you escape Kamala Harris. No. And Kamala Harris is a non-starter, mm-hmm. um, you know. But every everybody else you might parachute in might be a non-starter as well. So it they may be reduced to uh, either sticking with Biden when they know it's a non-starter, or you know turning this over to Harris and let her get beat, and then, you know, that's the end of her, and then throw all of their money into the House races to try to take the House back and hold some piece of the government that they can, you know, use to keep a Republican revolution from happening. We're talking to Scott McKay. He's the author of Racism, Revenge, and Ruin. It's all Obama. So I, I only have a little bit over a minute left here. Um, it has, has Joe Biden proven that, with Obama pulling the strings, if he still is, that it doesn't matter who the president is. Whether if if Michelle doesn't want it, they'll find somebody else. Uh, Maybe uh, they won't be able to find anybody as um, incoherent and stupid as Biden, but they could find somebody. Well, you know, that there you're really asking, I think, you know, how much of the of uh, of the deep state narrative is actually true. And I'm almost afraid to answer it because I think that a lot of it's true. Um, And I think that whether it's Obama installing these people or whether it's just the type of folks that get into government service in America now are hardcore leftists. um, You know, that thing now has a mind of its own and it makes more policy than the elected officials do, which is a very scary thing. Yeah, sure is, especially with people like Barack Obama running around. And he's still a young guy. He could be around for a while. Hey, um, Scott, I, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, good luck with the book, uh, Racism, Revenge, and Ruin. It's all Obama. Scott McKay, thank you. Well, you know, I've said here a lot um, that there are obviously a lot of big, important issues in the election in 2024, um, without having to go through the whole list, I think everybody knows what they are and where the differences are between the two candidates. If one of those candidates um, 
ends up being Joe Biden, which I don't think it will, but that's another story. But uh, you know what the issues are. I, being of um, being someone who who uh, kind of likes to simplify things and cut to the chase, I think that the I think that the entire campaign could be based on the picture of one person. Okay, that person would be one of my favorites, Doctor Rachel Levine. Okay, and the Republican Party could just use his picture on every ad, put billboards up, and have his picture there with his hideous hair falling on his shoulders and and just one of the ugliest so-called women ever to exist on the planet Earth and have it say something like, four more years with a question mark. To me, that settles it. Or, do you think this is a woman? Uh, and if not, vote Republican. I think it, the whole thing can be just absolutely whittled down to that. And, you know, you could you could change it. You wouldn't have to use um, Rachel Levine's picture. You could use a, a picture of a, a, fe- a so-called female rugby player running over three or four women when it's actually, a you know, a 225-pound man. And uh, do you think this is a woman? Vote Democrat in 2024. So apparently, uh, looking at the story at the Federalist, you know, um, Obama tried to put in the stupid uh, rules under Title IX, which would allow kids uh, or force uh, schools to allow kids uh, to use whatever bathroom they wanted based on whatever sexual, whatever gender they were identifying with that day or maybe even that morning. Maybe they could change in the afternoon. But uh, so Betsy DeVos was uh, appointed by Donald Trump to be uh, education secretary, and she reversed all this stuff, and it's all based on Title IX. But according to this story, uh, on February 2nd, which is, what, a week or so ago, the Department of Education submitted the final touches to its new Title IX rule, which is expected to receive the president's approval. In that rule, the Department of Education will force K-12 schools and colleges to enact policies that specifically cover sexual orientations and gender identities of all kinds. Presumably, this new rule will include bisexuals, polyamorous individuals, and potentially myriad myriad non-binary, neither male nor female, gender identities. It is one thing to suggest that schools ought to enforce anti-discrimination principles with respect to transgender individuals, but it's another to suggest schools must accept, validate, and accommodate every student's self-proclaimed gender identity and sexual orientation. The Biden uh, administration's proposed rule would do exactly this, and the consequences could be crazy. Uh, But he says, by now, this is Tristan Justice, by the way, at the Federalist, by now the debates over bathrooms, pronouns, and sport teams are familiar, but it's unclear if the Biden administration even understands the full scope of its proposed rule now that sexual orientation and gender identities have proliferated. Consider some potential effects. This is what I love about it. Students who insist they are neither male nor female might demand that a university build a separate dormitory for each unique gender identity, in addition to the male and female dormitories that are already established to ensure equal access for all. Some students who identify as gender fluid might insist on moving back and forth between the facilities, and yet it could get even more onerous for schools trying to comply. Uh, how about if it gets down to uh, students who insist they are animals or autigender, I don't know, whatever that is, or even cake. They're people who think they are, they are identifying as cake. 
This is what I'm saying. Just put the billboard up. Put Rachel Levine's picture up there. Do you think this is a woman? If the answer is yes, vote Democrat. Uh, Problem solved. No need to thank me. I'll talk to you tomorrow.